Luke chapter 11, we'll be looking at verses 14 through 23. God's word from Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 14, says, Now Jesus was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, He cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger comes and takes, attacks him and overcomes him, He takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Well, have you ever seen a magician? A couple of times we've been able to go to gatherings where there was a magician, and he was very impressive. I could watch him do the trick over and over, and yet could never figure out what he was doing. One of my favorites was he would take a dollar bill, And he would fold it, and then when he unfolded it, the corners of the dollar bill were now in the middle. How do you do that? And then he would fold it up, and he'd unfold it, and it was a $100 bill. And I handed him my wallet and said, please, keep going. Now, obviously, this is not real, because if he could really turn dollar bills into $100 bills, he wouldn't be at homes doing private parties. He'd be at the bank sitting there taking $100 and turning them into hundreds. There's some explanation for how... He does it. And if I wanted hard enough, I could go online and figure it out. But everything has an explanation. We may not know it at the time, and we may not know it for years, but God created a logical and orderly universe. And thus, every action is understandable and explainable, though we may not be able to do that. However, sometimes the problem is not that we don't know the explanation, but that we don't want to believe it that we want to believe anything but the real reason for why what has happened has happened. And we come to that this morning because Jesus cast out a demon, but we see the sad sad phenomenon that some just don't want to accept what this truly means. And the question is, how can Jesus do what he's doing? Well, in these verses, we see three things. First, there's skeptics of Jesus' authority. And then Jesus is going to logically work out where his authority comes from And then lastly, he's going to give an illustration of his authority. But first, we see these skeptics in verses 14 through 16, because Jesus, in some unnamed place, he cast out a demon of a man who's mute, and then the man speaks, and people marvel. It's very simple. But then a skeptic in the crowd says, well, Jesus only does this because he's doing it by the authority of Beelzebul. Now, if you read Mark chapter 3 and Matthew chapter 9, we know that this just wasn't anyone. The religious leaders are the ones who are saying this, who are denying this. 
and then and now, we have to realize that people who are so-called experts in the Bible are not always believers. When I graduated from college, I then went and taught math, and I knew long-term I wanted to go to seminary for counseling. We won't go into all of that story, but I had to get permission from my principal to go to seminary and check things out. So I went in and I talked to him. I said, hey, I need some time off so I can go to Philadelphia and check out the seminary. And then he started telling me this story. I was a kid once, and in my church, we sent a young man off to seminary. And then he came back, and after a few weeks, my dad was concerned. So we had him over for dinner. And during dinner, my dad said to him, do you believe that Jesus really rose from the dead, like bodily? And the pastor said, no, I don't believe that. And then my principal just kind of stared at me. I was like, okay, that's an interesting story. Can I go to Philadelphia? I just need you to sign the paper. But later I realized what he was trying to say without just saying it is, seminary is a dangerous place. Those people there, they're experts, maybe, but they are going to lead you to believe that the Bible actually isn't true. And he has good reasons to believe that. Do you... When we get close to Christmas or Easter, you can turn on the television and there will be specials in which scholars, New Testament, Old Testament scholars, history of religion scholars will tell you, let's learn about the historical Jesus. Not the Jesus of faith, what some people want to believe, but who Jesus really was, or so they claim. And as they go, you learn, well, these men and women, they might be really knowledgeable of what is in here, They might be really knowledgeable of the culture of that time, but they actually don't believe what this says. And that was true in Jesus' day, and it's true now. That people who are so-called experts in the Bible may not believe what it says. And so you have to be cautious. Don't believe someone just because they have a title, even pastor. Just because I say something doesn't mean it's true. You have to check God's Word. You shouldn't just listen to someone, oh, well, it's on Christian television or Christian radio, or some famous Christian said it. It must be true. Just because they say it doesn't mean it is true. Well, here, these religious leaders are saying that Jesus is getting his power from Beelzebul, which is a name used for the ruler of the demons. In other words, from Satan. So in essence, they're saying, look, Jesus only cast out demons because he's getting his power from the ruler of the demons. They have used this tactic before. We're not going to turn there, but Luke chapter 7, they use this argument for why they didn't believe John the Baptist. Oh, he just has demonic power. But before we go farther, it's interesting to note how we are interpreting beings. We see something that happens, and we have to explain it. From an early age, children try to piece the world together and know why, and for a couple years, they wear you out with, Well, why is this? Why is this? Why is that? Sometimes you say, well, this is. Just leave me alone. But we want to know. I've coached little kids soccer for several years, and one time a player got hit by the ball, and he was hurt. Are you okay? He goes, oh, I think I burst a blood vessel. Thinking, well, I don't think you burst a blood vessel, but the child couldn't just say, I'm hurt. They have to explain. They have to understand, have an explanation for what's going on. And here, this story is really all about explanation. The story is so simple. Demon-possessed man, healed. People are amazed. 
everything else, all of the verses are all about why could this happen? It's all about trying to understand it. You know, this is important to realize because facts are never just brute facts. They're always interpreted. As soon as someone says this is what happened, they're running it through their framework and they're explaining it. And so we have to dig into that to know what it really means. So here these people are denying that Jesus has his power from above. They're saying he has it from demons. And others, though, they're trying to test Jesus, to get him to give more signs. We see that in verse 16. And we need to realize that the desire for Jesus to give more signs, to prove or authenticate that he was from heaven, is not necessarily bad. It was a good thing. Deuteronomy 13, God warns the people of Israel, look, don't listen to every prophet, even if they can do signs and wonders. Matthew 7, Jesus himself warns of false teachers who will be able to cast out demons. So even Jesus said, don't just see one thing and believe someone as well. We could look at many other New Testament passages that warn us not to be taken captive by thoughts or people. However, Jesus has given plenty of evidence of his divine action. We've seen over and over that he did not perform his miracles in secret. And we could look at Luke 4.14 or 5.15 or 7.17 that all say that reports of him went out throughout the whole region. Now you may have noticed that was 4.14, 5.15, and 7.17. The numbers at the beginning and the end match. And what does that mean? Nothing. Don't ever get into crazy numerology like that. Stuff like that is not interpreting the Bible accurately. It means nothing. It just happened by chance that that's what worked out. But nonetheless, the point is, Jesus has given plenty of evidence, and these people have the evidence, but they want Jesus to be their genie. Hey, do another miracle. That'd be cool. Jesus even says something similar to this. John chapter 6, verse 26. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. They don't want to submit to Jesus. He could give them another miracle, and we're going to see in a second he does. But that's not going to compel belief. They just want to see him do more things. Thus, we've had these two skeptical views of Jesus. Well, he just gets his power from demons. Well, we just need more signs, and then we'll believe. And we're going to respond to those. Jesus is going to respond. But however, at this point, some of you, and definitely many in our, our culture, would have already mentally checked out. We are in the 21st century and we're still talking about demons and spirits. I mean, are we like, is this for real? Yes, it's for real. You know, we, we live in a world that says, well, spiritual forces, they don't exist, or we get consumed by them. C.S. Lewis famously wrote in the screw tape letters, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils or demons. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors. As for those who say they don't exist, this isn't just limited to naturalists. I'll sometimes hear Christians say things like, well, ghosts aren't real. Oh, well, Satan, he's just a symbol of evil. Well, whatever you call them, ghosts, demons, spirits, they're real. And I don't mean 
little beings running around with red tights with a little pitchfork, bifurcated tails. We're not talking of that. We're not talking about Casper. We're talking about based on the authority of God's word and the experience of countless, we could say millions, there are spiritual beings that exist in this world. And yet, as with many areas, some people have already decided before they face any facts, well, that can't exist. So no fact will ever convince them otherwise. Their presuppositions rule out that possibility. However, there's the other error, not just denying their existence, but to become obsessed with them. Every illness, every malady, oh, it's a demon. We must cast out the demon of pride, cast out the demon of poverty, the demon of illness. However, as we've gone through the Gospel of Luke, this is the only time that a healing of something sick, the mute person, was tied to demonic possession. All the other times, a healing was separate from them being demon-possessed. All illness is not from demonic power. And while demons do tempt us, for many of us, our own sinful flesh is quite enough to lead us to sin. Thus, we probably don't need to cast out the demon of anger in our life, but rather, by the power of God, we need to put to death the sinful anger in ourselves. It's most likely the devil didn't make you do it, but that you wanted to do it, and he just went ahead and let you go on your own desires. You know, it's quite interesting, as our culture has moved away from a solid belief in God, they've moved into a growing interest in the occult, witchcraft, and other demonic activity. Now, I'm not saying categorically Halloween is wrong, and if you trick or treat, don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with that. However, there are some aspects of Halloween that we need to say that is delighting in the demonic. That's delighting in death and as people of the resurrection. That we know sin is the cause of death. We should never delight in those things. So we have to strike this balance of not becoming obsessed with the devil, not becoming obsessed with demons, but at the same time realizing they're real and powerful. Well, in this case, in Luke, everyone knows the demon was cast out. They're just trying to explain it or explain it away. But Jesus is now going to logically work out from the facts the only way he could have done this is divine authority. So verses 17 through 20, the second section, we see that Jesus logically works out his divine authority. If you like logic terms, you could say he deduced it, meaning a deduction is when you have a set of facts and from them you build an argument. Because you may have noticed no one is disputing that a demon was cast out. There's not a third group going, well, actually demons aren't real. This man was just sick, and Jesus had this miraculous way of knowing how that works. No, everyone agrees a demon was cast out. Rather, they're trying to figure out how it was done. And so Jesus is going to basically lead them to see, look, there's two options. Either I get my power from the demonic realm, like you're saying, or I get my power from God, from divinity. And to do this, Jesus... He sets forth a statement, and then he works through three arguments, or you could say three conditionals. You know, conditional is just if then. If you clean up your room, we'll go out for dinner. You ought to do the first to get the second, or the first logically leads to the second. If you've been raised with Christ, then seek the things above. If-then statements. 
But first, in verse 17, Jesus begins with this overarching statement about a kingdom divided against itself being laid waste. And that, in our culture, is very well known because Abraham Lincoln quoted it in one of his famous speeches. And it's the obvious point that any kingdom, any house, any group that's constantly fighting amongst itself is never going to win. They're going to destroy themselves. Now there's some irony here because some of the people were just claiming, well, if we just had more evidence, then we'd believe. But what did Jesus just do? He just read their thoughts. How much more evidence could you have that you're sitting there going, well, this isn't right because of this in your mind, and then Jesus says, well, let me explain what you're thinking in your mind. Whoa. That should make you back up and go, he did give more evidence. So Jesus is now moving to give the evidence. In the first of the three conditionals, he says, well, look, if Satan is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Verse 18. And the clear answer is that he will not be able to do so. Jesus' words show that if his power is from the devil himself, then the devil is destroying his own kingdom. This is ridiculous. It's illogical to say that he cast out demons by the power and authority of the name of Beelzebub. And so Jesus then in verse 19 leads them to a second condition. And he asks, look, if he casts them out by Beelzebub, then who do your sons cast them out by? So first he attacked their bad logic, and now basically he's saying, let's think through the implications. If demons are only cast out by demons, well, what about all of your sons that you say are prophets of God, teachers of the law, who for centuries, all the way back to Solomon, have been able to cast out demons? Are you saying they are led by demons? And they won't admit this. They don't want to follow that implication. And so Jesus has showed by logic, I can't be doing this by satanic power. By implication, you don't even actually believe that yourselves. And so third, Jesus says, if he casts them out, verse 20, by the finger of God, then God's kingdom has come upon them. So there's this contrast. Is it demonic or divine authority? And if divine, it's by God's finger. Now here, Jesus is giving a subtle jab to the religious leaders because the finger of God is a phrase from Exodus Exodus 8:19 you may remember Moses and Aaron they come before Pharaoh and Moses knows well he's going to want to know he's going to want evidence that we're from God so how's he going to know this and Pharaoh says well how do I know you're really from God so Aaron throws his staff on the ground and it turns into a serpent and then after that through Aaron's staff, God turns water to blood. And then after that, frogs came up and covered the land. But for every one of those, the Egyptian magicians were able to do the same thing. But then after that, Aaron used his staff and they brought gnats all over the land. The dust turned to gnats and the magicians could not perform this feat. And then they say in Exodus 8.19, this is the finger of God. So Jesus is saying, look, you so-called experts of the law, Egyptian magicians who don't believe in me, they could recognize when I was working. But you, you could be thumped on the head. You could see something done right in front of you. You won't even believe it's the finger of God. And Jesus is attacking them. You could see an exorcism right in front of you, and you'll still go, 
No, that couldn't be by the finger of God. And so Jesus is subtly using their own knowledge of Scripture to say, listen to what you're saying. Even people who don't believe in me can recognize when I'm acting. And so the only logical answer Jesus leads them to is that God's kingdom has come upon them. You know, in Genesis 3.15, after sin came in the world, there was a declaration of war. God's kingdom would fight Satan's kingdom, and the seed of the woman would crush the serpent. The Old Testament foreshadowed this kingdom conflict, and then the incarnation was the beachhead of the invasion. Jesus' life showed that the kingdom had come because he healed the sick, he forgave the sinful, he resurrected the dead, he controlled nature, he cast out demons. And then by Jesus' death and resurrection, he assured the victory for God's kingdom. However, it has not fully yet come, and thus as Jesus taught us in this chapter, we still pray, thy kingdom come, or fully come. Thus Jesus leaves us with only two options about him. His miraculous deeds, let alone his resurrection, force us to either say he is either demonic or he's divine. We have to face the facts in front of us. Now at this point, some people try and ride the fence or sit on the fence. I always butcher sayings. You can figure out what it means. And they say, well, I don't really know, so I'm just going to say, who knows? Maybe Jesus is God, maybe he's not. I can't really know. I'm not going to take a stance. I'm going to be neutral. But that is actually not a neutral stance at all. Because it's saying to Jesus, you didn't give me enough evidence to know that you are God's son. It's saying, you didn't do enough. Now, we may not like where the facts lead us. And we may have all kinds of concerns of, what are the implications if I believe these facts? But the facts are still the facts. As Winston Churchill famously said, the truth is incontrovertible. Malice may attack it. Ignorance may deride it. But in the end, there it is. And in the end, Jesus is still there with a man who had been demon-possessed, no longer possessed. And everyone admitting it's happened. And them having to come face to face with, what am I going to do in response? Well, Jesus is now going to illustrate for them with a story his authority, the last section, verses 21 through 23. Verse 21, Jesus says, When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe, but when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. So there's this strong man, and he's got this palace, and he's doubly protected. Not only is he strong, but he also is fully armed. You know, he has muscles, rippling on top of muscles. You didn't even know a muscle could exist in that place. He's got one. He has surveillance cameras, motion detectors, infrared scanners. Okay, well, maybe that's a little anachronistic. But you get the point. This man is safe. He is strong physically, and he's armed. And yet, someone stronger, more fully armed, comes and conquers this strong man. And then all those armor, all the weapons that he trusted in, they're just taken away. And the goods that the man had in his palace, that he thought, I'll have these forever. 
They're taken away in the spoils of war. Well, what is Jesus saying with this illustration? Well, he's alluding to Isaiah 49, 24 through 26, and showing that he is the real king who has come to conquer those who are oppressing his people. You know, the story is depicting a great battle. And the strong man in the story is Satan. The stronger one who came and conquered him is Jesus. And the armor which the strong one trusted in are the demons. The goods that Satan thought he had safe in his palace are people. But Jesus, as the conquering warrior, comes and rescues these people as the spoils of his victory in this war. And since Jesus bound Satan, Jesus now goes through and removes Satan's demons. In essence, he can do this because as John the Baptist foretold, the stronger one is yet to come. So Jesus came on a military conquest and his defeat of the demons shows ultimately that he has conquered Satan, the strong one. Thus, Jesus is saying, look, I'm not getting my power from demons. I'm getting my power from God. I'm the stronger one who's come and conquered. Now, these truths are why Jesus is sometimes called Christus Victor. It's Latin for Christ the Victor. It is here, though, that we run into a problem because this happens not just in theology, but politics and all kinds of realms. Someone will take a true idea, and then they run with it too far. And then other people go, well, look how far they've run with that. That's not true. This is true over here. And yet, maybe they're both true, and they're unbalanced. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, here, some have taken this true idea in Scripture that, scripture, that Christ is the victor, and they've said, you know what? That's the dominant theme of Scripture. Jesus wasn't really like a substitutionary atonement. That's, oh, we don't like that language. That's weird. Jesus is the victor. That's, that's what Jesus came to do. You don't need to really believe all that substitutionary atonement stuff. And yet, Jesus was called the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. That only makes sense as you understand all of the sacrificial system in the Old Testament that's clearly pointing to the fact that Jesus was a substitutionary atonement that the wrath of God might be taken from us and put on His Son. However, as people want to say, look, look, yes, Jesus is a substitutionary atonement, they go, well, so we shouldn't believe this Christus Victor idea because that's denying that Jesus died for our sins. Well, no, they're, they're both true. Jesus is a lion conquering king and a lamb suffering servant. They're not in competition. They're in harmony. Jesus came and he conquered and he rules. He's the lion conquering king and the lamb suffering substitutionary sacrifice. And we should really realize that there are many themes that scripture gives us to fully understand what Jesus did. Just think of some of the terms we use. Justification. That's a term from legal courts. Or the term adoption. That gives us the language of family and relationships. Or reconciliation. That's an accounting term. Conquering. A military term. All of these different images given to show us what Jesus came and did. So what did Jesus do? We did many things. And it takes many themes to fully paint the picture 
of who He is than what He's done. Just like He's our Father. He's our friend. He's our Lord. He's our Savior. All true themes. All of them showing us the beauty of Christ. And Christ being the victor over the devil is a theme that runs through the New Testament. Thus the Apostle John writes, 1 John 3.8, the reason the Son of God appeared, well that's strong, the reason, was to destroy the works of the devil. Now, I don't think he's denying the atonement in any way, but he's saying one of the reasons was to destroy the works of the devil, or Colossians 2.14-15, Paul, God forgave us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And then he says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The idea of victory, or Hebrews 2, 14-15 declares, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And so Christ did come to conquer the devil, to be the victor. Now, you might be thinking, okay, well, that's all well and good. Those of you who like to go online and debate that stuff, great. Now we, now we know. Well, this is not just ivory tower, online debate forum issues. This really matters. Because Jesus, being the victor, should give you great hope. As we read earlier, that the heavens are going to open and a white horse will appear and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. As you look around our country, as you see the waning influence of Christianity in our courts and our morality, you could say, we're, just, we're losing. It's a losing battle. Yet Christ will come again. The victory is assured. Maybe as you look at your own life, and you, all you see is defeats, all you see is failures, you should look and see that Christ will come again. Victory is assured. When you consider your death or the death of loved ones, and you wonder and fear, what are things going to look like? You should know that Christ will come again. And the victory is assured. So we can boldly declare, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have not fully experienced the victory yet, but it is secured and it is coming. Thus, we must fight. We still put on the armor of God, but we do so not with the resignation that we're just holding on as long as we can, but this is a losing battle. We hold on with the assured confidence that the victory is on our sides, that the strong one has been bound and the stronger one will come again. Not only does this give us hope, but it clarifies Jesus' message. When Jesus commissioned his disciples, what did he begin with? He said, all authority has been given me on heaven and on earth. He began with saying, look, my kingdom has won, and so I have all authority. Jesus didn't come just to be your therapist, to make you feel better. He didn't just come to give us good morals so that we might lead an enjoyable life. Those things are true, but he also came to be 
the conquering authority. To call not just demons, but all people everywhere to submit to him. Not to make him Lord. He is Lord. To bow to his lordship. To come to know him. You know, sadly, many people come to Jesus, well, yeah, I feel guilty, so I just want that taken care of, but I still want to lead my life how I want to. And Jesus says, no, I'm the king. You must bow. And he will welcome all who joyfully come in faith and repentance. But all of this language of battle really makes verse 23 clear. Because Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. There's no neutrality in the spiritual conflict. There's no Switzerlands who can try and just stay, well, I'm not really going to go for that. Well, I'm not going to do that either. I'm just going to do nothing. you either for him or against him. But sadly, many Americans today are, to steal a term, apatheist. It's not they don't believe in God. They're just rather apathetic about it. You know, the sad reality is apatheism is probably more dominant in our culture than theism, atheism, polytheism, or some other theism. For apatheism, we'll take any and all theisms, it doesn't matter, as long as you just don't really care that much about it. As long as you keep it maybe an hour, once a week, maybe a couple hours, as you, if that's good for you personally, that's fine, but don't ever let that influence how you talk to someone else. Don't ever let that come out into the public square. You can believe whatever you want as long as you just don't think it's that important. And yet that's a belief being pushed. And sadly, many Americans have bought that. Oh yeah, I'm a Christian. Oh, what have you been reading in Scripture? Oh, I haven't read the Bible in a while. Oh, where do you go to church? Oh, I don't really go to church. Oh, well, uh, do you even like to talk about God? I don't really like to talk about God. But I'm a Christian. Trust me. A long time ago, I did stuff. I walked an aisle. I'm good. And yet Jesus says here, whoever is not with me is against me. And he even makes clear because he says, whoever does not gather with me. It's not just, oh, I, I'm on his team. You should be working with him. Jesus also says in Revelation 3, 15 through 16, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you would be either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Apathyism is not an option in Jesus' world. So Jesus has given strong words of warning. Are you with him? All you have to do is bow the knee in faith and repentance, and he welcomes all who come to him. You know, the power of God did not leave this earth when Jesus ascended into heaven. Because the power of God is the gospel that brings salvation. You know, Richard Gans is a man who came to see God's power. He was an extremely, well still is, an extremely intelligent man. He was top of his class in his undergraduate studies, top of his class in graduate studies, got two masters and a PhD in psychoanalysis in three years instead of the normal seven. He then applied to a very prestigious postdoctoral program and was the only candidate chosen out of 212. Yet during his time working there, he became disillusioned 
with psychoanalysis and became a believer in Jesus Christ. And then his faith began to spill out into his work. One day he was given a case with a man named Emmanuel. Emmanuel hadn't said an intelligible word in four years. And just to get him to say a couple words together would have been uh, counseling a psychoanalysis win, a victory. So he goes in and Emmanuel's rocking back and forth. He's really agitated and Richard says, Emmanuel, whatever it is, just blurt it out. Just say it. And Emmanuel's rocking and finally says, I am Jesus Christ. And Richard replied, quoting Matthew 24, 23, Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. Then Emmanuel said back to him, where would you read that? And Richard, as he recounts his story, goes, I saw my whole career before my eyes. I could continue on the trajectory of success all the way up to department head, chair of the department, or I could tell this man about Jesus. Well, he didn't have much more, but he did tell Emmanuel that it was from the Gospel of Matthew, and they didn't have much more at that time. But a month later, Richard, he'd kind of forgotten about it, sitting in his office and, come on in, and it's Emmanuel. And Richard says, Emmanuel, come in. Can I do something for you? He says, I want to come to trust Jesus Christ. And again, Richard sees career, telling this man about Jesus, what I do. And he says, oh, really? Well, when? He's like, now. So Richard, all right. So he tells him about God. He tells him about his wonderful creation, our fall into sin, the plan of redemption in Christ, how he can be restored to God through faith and repentance because of what Jesus did. And Emmanuel is saved. Well, the next week he comes to work and he has a notice that he needs to go down to the department head's office. So Richard goes in and goes, oh, Howard, how's it going? He goes, Richard, sit down. You know, I've worked here for 30 years and I've heard some pretty crazy stories. Richard's a rather funny guy. He goes, yeah, crazy. That's what we deal with. <laughs> crazy people crazy stories. He goes, no, 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 this one actually is the craziest I've ever encountered. He said, Richard, you know Emmanuel, don't you? He goes, oh yeah, I know Emmanuel. He goes, well, Emmanuel's going around the ward telling people that he's saved and how they can be saved by Jesus. And if they have questions he can't answer, he goes, oh, well, just go ask Dr. Gans. Is that true? And Richard said, well, I can't answer all their questions. No, 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 no. Is it true that you told him about Jesus, and he now trusts. Well, yes, that's true. And I'll make the rest of the story short. Basically, the department head said, well, you can resign and be done in 30 days, or you can promise that you will never, ever talk about that again here. Richard thought, and I believe he took a day. I don't remember that detail, but basically he said, I can't make that promise. So 30 days later, he, with Emmanuel and another man, who had become sane through Dr. Gans, left the psychiatric hospital. Now, my point is not that everyone in a psychiatric hospital is demon-possessed. My point is not that if you become converted to Jesus Christ, all your mental issues will go away. That is not my point. But rather, just back up from the story and think. Here was a man who hadn't said an intelligible word in four years. He's now carrying on lucid conversations around the whole psychiatric ward. And the department head doesn't say, you know, I don't really get this, Richard, and I don't believe it, but this is amazing. You know, we're here to help people, and this man who couldn't talk, he's now a functioning person in society. This is wonderful. 
you know, maybe we could let you do some of this. No, it's either complete denial or acceptance. There's no middle ground. So where have the facts left you? You know, Jesus still heals. You know, we often think of people like Emmanuel. Oh man, he was really screwed up. I'm not that messed up. Jesus says eternally, you're worse than Emmanuel. You might be able to coherently string many words together. But if you're not trusting if Christ, if you have not submitted to him, your situation is just as bad, if not worse, than Emmanuel's. And so Jesus says, I'm here, I want to heal. Will you come? Will you come and receive me? Let's pray. Oh Lord, we desperately need you. We thank you that you have come and you did for us what we could never do. You achieved the victory over sin, death, and the devil. Oh Lord, give us confidence. Give us strength as we lean on you, for you are the one who gives us victory. It's not by us, Lord. It's not by our power, but by you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.